ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacGyver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. A rule that we used to use and that they used to teach uh, when I was in the military was, again, you don't pull your gun until you're ready to shoot it. Right. So that's another one that he broke. And then, of course, having his finger on the trigger is another one that he broke. So those, he was negligent about. I think that Fulton County DA's office is definitely going to try to do a full character assassination on MacGyver at trial. The idea that there is any motive, financial or otherwise, behind an accidental and unintentional shooting is the worst type of, to quote a current politician, fake news that you'll ever hear. Bill Rankin here. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 5 of Breakdown. After a week of jury selection, we've learned a lot about the challenges facing both sides in the Tex MacIver murder case. But I wanted to start with one particular person, Juror 135. She's a pre-K teacher. The lawyers questioned scores of people as prospective jurors, but she made more of an impression on me than the 134 folks who came before her or the 10 who came after. She seemed to know more details about the case than any other juror, and she had strong, strong feelings about it. I'll let Juror 135 take it from here. When Mrs. MacGyver was being treated, that the doctor said that she knew that she was going to die (laughs) and asked her if she wanted to see her husband and she said no and that where she was injured and that she said that it was uh, an accident which um, if it were me and my husband had shot me and I had a decent relationship I would have wanted to see him to say, I forgive you for this happening. I love you. Goodbye. She was pretty sure that Diane McIver's death was no accident. They showed a photo of the bullet hole in the seat, from the back of the seat and from the front of the seat. And it just seemed to me that if it was an accident, that it would have been, the bullet would have been in a more random place. To me, it seems like the bullet being slightly to the left in the mid-range of the seat is it's going to hit um, the person sitting there and their most important organs. And that seemed aimed to me. Um, it seemed very difficult to believe that it's going to be an accident and it's just going to wind up right there. Juror 135 is emblematic of a problem that Tex MacIver will face in this trial. So let's get to it. 
I knew it would be a challenge to pick a jury in this case, but I thought it could be done. Fulton is Georgia's most populous county. Surely they could find enough jurors who hadn't already made up their minds about MacIver. After all, they just needed 42 people to make up the final jury pool. That's the pool the prosecution and defense will use to exercise their strikes and finally seat 12 jurors and four alternates. 42 people out of more than 700,000 adults living in Fulton County. But this will be a month-long trial, so you have to subtract all the people for whom a month off work would be too great a hardship. Like salespeople who rely solely on commissions, or folk who own their own businesses and don't have people to replace them. There are also the people with prepaid plane tickets for personal vacations. Some made me jealous. Those headed to Italy, the Caribbean, the Big Apple. And there were also those with medical problems that exempted them from jury service. On top of that, consider, this case has drawn nationwide publicity ever since Diane McIver's death in September 2016. Suddenly, it's not so easy to find 42 impartial folks who can take off work, who haven't booked passage to exotic places, and who are healthy enough to endure a month-long trial. On the second day of jury selection, all of us keeping a close eye on the process began to wonder, how long was this going to take? Days? Weeks? Prospective jurors were being excused by the busload. Still, I was pretty surprised when Judge Robert McBurney said this. So I will observe this for the record. Our first group of 48, we had 18, that's a big old number, uh, indicate they had already formed an opinion or whatnot. And this is not based on questionnaires. This is based on raising their card for bias or partiality or opinion, 18. In this group, 27. Um, So uh, we are, are... Definitely moving in the direction of, do we get a jury in Fulton County? Please, God, this can't happen again, right? It did with Ross Harris in season two. Moved from Cobb County to Brunswick on the coast. Being 300 miles away from my family for all that time was awful. And then, last fall, the McIver trial was delayed for four months. People in the newsroom and on Twitter began to say things about breakdown. When we choose a case to cover, we doom that case to endless delays, they said. Justice delayed is justice covered by breakdown. However, in spite of Judge McBurney's concern, the week-long slog through 144 prospective jurors worked out. The parties to the case will qualify enough people to create the pool from which the jury will be chosen. It wasn't easy. The court and the lawyers by statute must ask questions of each prospective juror. Do you come into this case not perfectly impartial to both sides? Do you have any prejudice or bias resting on your mind against the accused? Have you formed any opinion as to the guilt or innocence of the accused? Yes, like juror 135, many, many prospective jurors said they had already made up their minds. And all who'd made up their minds said they think Tex is guilty. So why were they saying they couldn't be fair to McIver? an answer we heard over and over again. This shooting could not have happened by accident. Here's a sampling of some jurors explaining why they don't buy Texas' account of what happened. It's a big sampling, which gives you an idea of how common these sentiments were. Here's juror number four. Honestly, if you're driving through a bad area and you have a gun in your hand, you don't fall asleep. Did you hear that? She said, if you're driving through a bad area and you have a gun in your hand, you don't fall asleep. 
Here's Juror 34. Don't necessarily believe in accidental shootings. So unless somebody's cleaning their gun at the time that it happens, I just don't get the accident thing. Juror 39. We're avid gun owners and we work with guns a lot. Um, I was born and raised doing that. So I guess with like no disrespect that um, I just don't believe a gun just randomly goes off. It's just not possible. And Juror 89. The evidence that I have heard does not add up and it lends me to believe that the defendant uh, is guilty. And Juror 86. I'm a Southern girl, so I grew up around hunting and guns. And although I never liked them and never did it, but dad took me shooting and I took riflery lessons and it's hard to pull a trigger. And you, you know, there's certain things you have to do with the gun to get it ready to pull and all of that. And so I just, there's no such thing as an accidental shooting. And then Juror 86 opened a different can of worms, one that we visited in our last episode. You may recall that Robert McBurney is one of the few judges in Georgia who permits jurors to ask questions of witnesses. You may also recall that defense attorney Bruce Harvey thinks it's a terrible idea. Here's what Juror 86 said. I would want to ask questions as well, a juror. I, 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 I'd have a hard time sitting there without saying, but I want to know X. That would be an um, unconstitutional possibility in this courtroom. Um, <laughs> Um, You're in a good place, 86. So, um, Your needs are appreciated and respected. McBurney later declined the defense's request to strike juror 86 for cause. So, they're all saying they don't believe it was an accident. Nearly all these jurors were struck. They're gone. But the defense has to be worried so many people have expressed such an opinion. And to many, it was open and shut. On some occasions, Prosecutors tried to rehabilitate these jurors, but they had very little success. In a lot of cases, Prosecutor Clint Rucker just shook his head when asked if he objected. It would have been futile. Noah Pines, an Atlanta criminal defense lawyer who once served as a prosecutor, is following the case. He said it makes sense to him why so many gun-toting jurors have fixed opinions as to McIver's guilt. Normally, in cases that involve the use of a firearm, especially self-defense cases, I always like to have people who have either used a firearm or who own a firearm, because those people understand, um, you know, first of all, the mindset of, of needing to defend yourself, and they've also had the ability to use a firearm. In this case, where, you know, at least the defense is accident, right? or potentially reckless conduct for pulling a gun out and having it on your lap while you're sleeping, the thought came to me of, gee, do I really want somebody who has experience with a firearm? Because a lot of people um, who are serious gun owners would question why you would ever have a gun in your lap while you were sleeping. And they may also question whether the gun could have accidentally gone off the way that I believe the defense is going to present to the jury. A lot of jurors said they didn't buy the shooting as a tragic accident. But there were some other jurors who said they couldn't be fair for an entirely different reason. They support gun control and don't care for people who own guns, especially those who weren't careful enough to prevent an accidental, fatal shooting. Here's Juror 74. Over the past several years, I've become sort of vocal proponents of anti-gun philosophy. 
Defense Attorney Bruce Harvey followed up by saying, Tell me your opinion. Guns are bad, guns are wrong. Someone who discharges a gun resulting in the death of his wife, and in, in, uh, uh, the word that you used is reprehensible, correct? Yes, the juror said. This gentleman sitting here, accused of crime, who you have heard discharged a firearm which killed his wife, is therefore reprehensible. And that's fine. And wouldn't it be hard to give someone who you have stark opinions about using gun violence um, and who, in this situation, you find to be reprehensible, wouldn't it be hard to give them a fair trial? Yes, the juror said. Juror number 75 felt much the same way. Yeah, I've never fired a gun, and I've never touched a gun. The point is... um, you know, guns kill people, and uh, they can be used for recreation. I, I respect that, um, but uh, there's serious consequences with guns. And, and you know, I, I read and I watch the news, and uh, I, you know, I want to be in full disclosure and just pass an opinion. I, I, you know, I believe that you know, I, I, you know, guns should be on safety. There should be no chance of it ever going off. At the end of the day, I do believe in the process, but you know, my opinion is pretty firmly entrenched that there was wrongdoing there. That it was not an accident. I, I, I don't know how it could be, with all due respect. Then there was Juror 95, an NRA-certified pistol instructor who's also an avid hunter. As for what Tex did on the night he shot and killed Diane, Juror 95 said, I think the handling of the firearms is very careless uh, and, and it would be... I want to use the term idiotic. It is, you know, somewhat an inalienable rule that you don't point that gun anywhere that it can cause problems. Don Samuel, one of MacGyver's defense lawyers, moved to strike Juror 95 on grounds he couldn't give Tex a fair trial. I was surprised after the juror gave his opinion that Prosecutor Clint Rucker argued to keep him in the pool. But Samuel later referred to what's really the 800-pound gorilla in the room the possibility that the jury may be allowed to decide whether MacIver is guilty of involuntary manslaughter, a lesser offense than murder that carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. How is this juror ever going to rationally look at involuntary manslaughter? How is he ever going to look at a charge on reckless conduct? There's no way this juror would give us a fair trial. He is absolutely committed to the view, if you engage in that factual conduct, Which you're right, it's going to be hard-pressed to deny those facts. We're dead in the water. Judge McBurney agreed. We need to think beyond just the charge of murder. I don't think I used the word murder with him, but that's clearly what's top of mind for everyone. As for involuntary manslaughter? That is something that I suspect will be front and center a little bit later on. Um, And I think that would put the defendant in a position where he wouldn't get fair consideration from Juror 95 on the question of involuntary manslaughter. And that's something that's not off the table right now. We'll be right back. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. 
During this seemingly endless parade of jurors who stated they couldn't believe MacIver's story about his wife's killing being an accident, Tex sat at the defense table and took it all in without showing much emotion at all. But when juror number 80 appeared, he had Tex's full attention. This was someone who said he not only knew Tex, but was someone who thought the world of Tex. Juror 80 said he'd met Tex more than 20 years ago when MacIver offered his legal services in a labor dispute. I had a very positive business and relationship. You know, there was a mentoring activity that went on during that process. As for his sitting in judgment of this man? I find it very uneasy to be involved in sitting in a situation where I would be making an opinion on someone I have great respect for. Why? Well... This guy thinks the world of Tex, but he doesn't buy Tex's explanation that this was all an accident. Further reports came out, and I would sit there and go, well, that just doesn't, that doesn't sound right. So Tex finally had a very friendly face who wasn't that friendly at all. He was struck for cause. Then there were the precious few jurors who seemed to have an open mind as to whether Diane's death was an accident. Here's juror number 83. From when I was growing up, somebody that was a little older than me uh, was with three boys, and one of them ended up being shot, but they were playing with a gun. But those were children, but I knew that to be an accident. And I said I wasn't able to really judge if it was acting, you know, I'm not sure. The next day, juror 104 expressed a similar view. She's a college graduate in her 20s with a degree in business management, and she carries a gun. She said she's been careless handling her gun before, picking it up the wrong way, forgetting it was in her lap. She said she had an open mind. Quote, I could see where it could have been a mistake or that it was perfectly planned, unquote. I want to share one final moment from jury selection. Judge McBurney is a strong advocate of jury service. I hope you've listened to season six, A Jury of His Peers, and heard McBurney's civic lessons on jury duty. Here's what Judge McBurney tells prospective jurors as they begin to hear what's in store for them during the selection process. We appreciate very much the sacrifice you've already made and that you'll continue to make while you spend time with us today. Uh, you are fulfilling one of the more important obligations you have as a member of the community and the country and our society, and that's jury duty. Uh, we decided long ago that when there is a dispute that requires um, a community solution. We do it by way of a jury deciding, a group of peers drawn from the community uh, that decides a close issue. So this is what happened to Juror 11, who apparently didn't get the memo. Juror 11 said he'd followed the case quite a bit and had already formed an opinion. Here's McBurney asking him about that. What's your opinion? That uh, he's guilty. Okay. McBurney then turned over the questioning to the state, and Assistant DA Kara Condry tried to get Juror 11 to say he could put his initial thoughts aside and decide the case on its merits. Um, if you are selected and the judge tells you that you are to base your opinions and come to the conclusions you come to from the evidence in this trial, is that something that you can do? Uh, probably, probably not. Okay. So when well, you say probably not, why is that? Um... I don't know. I don't, I've got my own opinion. I don't really want to hear about it. You know, I've got work to do. I'm mean, losing money coming here. I just don't care. To, it had nothing to do with me, and I don't care to be a part of it. Bad move. Bad 
move. McBurney then told the juror to step outside the courtroom and wait in the hallway while the lawyers decided what to do next. So here's what typically happens. After the court decides that a juror must be struck because he or she can't be fair and impartial, McBurney will call the person back into court, thank them for showing up, and release them from jury duty. Here's the judge telling juror number 11 what to do next. All right, um, if you would step outside, number 11. When do we know if we've got to come back? He asked, when do we know if we've got to come back in or not? How about in about two minutes? Defense attorney Don Samuel moved to strike juror 11 for cause. McBurney asked him to state his reasons. He's got an opinion. He's got a bias. He doesn't like being here. He doesn't like the defendant. He's Ms. Connery, anything you want? Do you oppose that? Do you... No opposition? No opposition. Okay. Um, I will grant the motion, uh, and juror 11 will be struck for cause. Then, McBurney does something that, well, seemed pretty darn fitting to a juror who said he had no time for this and even thumbed his nose at the process. Instead of calling Juror 11 back into the courtroom and releasing him, here's what McBurney told the courtroom deputy. If you let him know it's going to be a little bit longer, I'll, I'll let him know a little bit later. Thank you. About two hours later, when court adjourned, Juror 11 was told he was finally free to go. Just before jury selection began, Judge McBurney ruled on several pretrial motions. He delivered some big wins for the prosecution. First, the testimony about the prosecution's recent allegations that Tex McIver tried to bribe someone to make his charges go away. That will be allowed. Second, the jury will get to hear that Diane McIver was planning to make changes to her will. That's relevant, the judge said, but bear in mind the prosecution hasn't found this purported will. Third, the jury will get to hear that neither Tex nor Danny Joe Carter, who was driving the Ford Expedition the night of Diane's death, called 911. But jurors will not get to hear testimony about the fact that Grady Hospital with a level one trauma center was closer than Emory where Diane was taken. Nor will they get to hear that Diane would have had a better chance of surviving had she been taken to Grady. Nor will they be able to hear testimony estimating the response time by paramedics responding to a 911 call. There were paramedics at a firehouse just 300 yards away from where Tex shot Diane. But all that's just too speculative, McBurney said. Finally, Bill Crane, who served as Texas spokesman shortly after the shooting, will be able to tell the jury that Tex said he wanted his gun because he feared Black Lives Matter protesters were around, or carjackers, or homeless people. The defense, no surprise here, had asked that this final bit of information be withheld from the jury. It contended any evidence of race should be excluded. It said, and I quote, race is not an issue in this case. Not one facet of this case has anything to do with the race of a party, a victim, or a witness. Yet the state wants to introduce evidence that MacGyver intentionally shot and killed his wife while possessing a gun with some improper racial animus. Unquote. If allowed, the defense said, the prosecution will have achieved its goal of suggesting to the jury that MacGyver is not a sympathetic person, and it will have exploited race as an issue. And I quote, that stench will remain and will infect the jury's consideration. Unquote. 
But Rucker told McBurney that race does play a role in Texas thought process. He brought up the gun found in Texas sock drawer while he was out on bond. Rucker said, and I quote, It's another incident in which a suggestion has been made how a gun could have mysteriously entered a sock drawer of Mr. McIver and there were two people it was alleged to have done it, one being James Yu, unquote. James Yu, who's African-American, was a longtime driver for Diane and picked up groceries for the couple and ran other such errands. He was very loyal to the McIvers. Yu took the stand during McIver's bond revocation hearing. He was asked directly whether he planted the gun in Texas sock drawer. Yu was visibly shaken when he responded, no. At a recent hearing, Rucker said he found it instructive that McIver tried to throw Yu under the bus. Quote, It shows a pattern on Mr. McIver's part of a willingness to kind of point a finger at some other folks of a different you, perhaps, unquote. Here's Noah Pines again talking about the issue of race, more specifically Black Lives Matter, being heard by the jury. The defense wants to keep it out. I read their motions. They think that race has nothing to do with the shooting. And as they point out in their motion, you know, the... um, Mr. McIver's is white, his wife was white, the witness is white, there's really no race in here. The state wants to bring it in. Now, the defense says, well, they want to bring it in to, to show that Tex McIver's a racist and he's a bad person, so the jury doesn't like him. Really, if you ask me, you know, thinking as a prosecutor, the state wants to bring it in just because the story is so outrageous. This case is really about is the case is about why the gun was in his lap, how it went off, did he mean to shoot her, was it reckless, was it an accident? We're at the end of jury selection, or the end of jury selection is in sight. That means opening statements are coming, and you know how I like opening statements. Both sides get to tip their hands. We find out what the prosecution has on text, or what it claims to have, and what the defense will do to counter it. Next, on Breakdown. Openings are your chance to kind of really just summarize what the case is about to the jury. As a prosecutor, I was very careful about making sure that I couldn't promise something I couldn't prove. So if I couldn't prove it, I wouldn't promise it in openings. And I think it just is good to give a jury a roadmap of, you know, where you're going to start, where you're going to go, and where you're going to end. Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Billy Guin, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, who lit the fire that became Breakdown. Special thanks as well to the AJC's editor-in-chief and podcaster, Kevin Riley, to Pete Corson, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagore, and all the fine folks at the Journal-Constitution, plus Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, Buddy Hall, Josh Gaynor, and our good friends at WSB-TV and radio. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex McIver. An inmate at... Fulton County Jail. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, 
do and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.